Welcome to another episode of Farmerama, with more voices from smaller scale farmers in the UK and beyond. We'll be hearing from two projects which are using film to share stories from the front lines of farming. We meet a sociologist who's been studying the relationship between urban and rural communities in Greece. And we indulge in more fungi love as we learn how they can contribute to the health of the soil and dramatically lower the amount of input it needs. Sabina Hellmann is a filmmaker with a long-standing interest in food. Her first documentary explored the introduction of GM crops in northeast Germany. Since then, she's been involved with several other food and farming-related projects, both as a filmmaker and as a trainer, helping others to use film as a tool for communication, debate and advocacy. She told us about her work with small-scale farmers in Malawi, I'm coming from a background as a filmmaker and I've been to different places where I've dived into a community and tried to capture everyone. So that was my approach always and I really enjoyed it. I also really thought a lot about the ethics of it and I was always a bit uncomfortable. I always felt I'm taking something from people without giving enough back or really making sure they know the magnitude of giving me all their information, their emotions and so on. In 2013, two former colleagues approached me and asked me, Sabine, we're doing another project in Malawi. Would you like to come along? But not as a filmmaker, but actually training people to make their own films. And I was like, oh, I have no idea how to do that. But my one colleague said, well, there's this really great tool process called participatory video, and maybe you can do it. There's a course actually coming up in Oxford, an amazing course. So went to the course two weeks later, off to Malawi. The project itself was an agricultural project, which was for me really interesting. It was basically trying to adapt permaculture principles and figuring out how this can be done in a Malawian context, in a peasant farming context where people are absolutely dependent on soil quality, water rainfall patterns, which are disastrous in the last years, like super changing climate. And people are basically dependent on a good crop. If the crops fail, people are suffering from hunger. Partly the issue is that many years ago, clever white people came and told them to grow maize, which is a water dependent crop, does well when the rain pattern is doing its job right, but in recent years has caused a lot of trouble. Partly also because the soils have eroded, people grow the maize in rows that often means that the water just runs off. And then it's getting hot again and the maize dries, dries up. Permaculture principles also means people were not just told, oh, this is how you do it. We got field workers to come to Kusamala, which is a, a really nice permaculture center based in Lilongwe. And they were trained up by local staff and were shown the techniques and they had to do them. They had to dig up soil and looked at the soil and how what's it composed of. They learned about the chemistry and what makes good soil and what not. They learned how to make a compost pile. They had to do one. They had they saw the different demonstrations that are, were there and they had to, you know, go through those through the steps so that they really understand they can go back to the community and really show. So it was part of the whole project where the video comes in 
is that we wanted to look at once we give people the tools to film themselves, first we wanted to find out what's the general situation on the ground. So we made different workshops and just wanted to make films about what they felt was important to them. So the second phase is the monitoring evaluation phase where we really wanted to, to see has it worked, what didn't work, what issues came up. And through doing that by giving people the tools to express themselves and discuss in a group and you know, not really just sending them a questionnaire out where they just have to tick boxes, whether how many grams of rice they harvested or maize, but actually making a story, you actually find out. And it was amazing to see. Already the, the first phase, we called it baseline phase, was really in, incredible because lots of stories were done about something that we never anticipated. For example, when we started to train um, farmers to use mulching, so using the old maize stalks, old crop residues to cover the, the, the fields, they got into trouble because it is a cultural habit, often by the kids in town, that go off, burn the field to hunt mice. So obviously, when your field is burned and you did all this work to, to try to do something slightly innovative and new, you kind of lose hope. So one of the stories was about that. And we never knew that this was actually something we would encounter as a problem. Another issue was with um, cheeky vendors that come in and try to sell, uh, buy the maize from families to a really shoddy price. So basically ripping them off. So they made a film about it and how you can avoid these cheeky vendors coming in and you know in the end the family could go hungry because they sold too much maize for too little money all these things that we never really knew about and anticipated came through and we had to deal with them right there and then and figure out solutions while the project was still ongoing and that's new because oftentimes you go into a country you think yeah it's a great idea this is a great solution to your problem do it People do it for two or three years, funding runs out, they leave and no one does it ever again. Often because it sometimes doesn't work or because cultural habits, like the burning of the crop residue, make people stop. So that was why we also chose the video, because partly what was really great with the video, people were so happy and um, themselves surprised how easy it is to make their own compost, for example. Oh my God, Malawian fertilizer prices with seed price and everything is such a lot of input that a family has to put into their field and then often it doesn't work. Partly it doesn't work if the rain stops because then the fertilizer burns the crops and so on. So they ended up making films that actually showed others how to do it. For us, it was an amazing side effect of this whole project that they decided we want to make a film, how to make proper manure from your own crops, uh, animal manure and how you turn it into something that helps your plants grow. We had a screening tour where we chose about, I think, 10 short films that the farmers found that best showed what they want to get across. And we showed them to about six different communities, packed schoolroom, packed churches. We had a bicycle powered projector and people were glued to the screen. They really sucked in all this information. And it was for a lot of people, it was like, oh my God, that's my neighbor. It wasn't some outsider telling them something. It was someone from their community showing this is how I make my manure and you can do it too. And this is so great because. So that was fantastic. Having this experience of after the screening, everyone was talking and, oh, can we do it? It was absolutely great to see how a little bit of this technology, you give it 
into the room and they take it up and take it out and go off and do something and use it. Like PV is so adaptable to many situations. You use it to engage disadvantaged communities or communities that have a really powerful message but is not heard, is, is not shared somewhere and it really needs to be shared. Why PV is also really powerful for types of projects where you want to reach an audience like decision makers that might not really understand the situation on the ground. Once people get to understand from communities what's going on, they're actually much more able to relate. You see a person talk and do things, you, you really realize what their struggle is. If your Chichewa is better than mine, then you'll know that these farmers are singing about the Kusamala Permaculture Project in Doha District, Malawi, and specifically about making compost. Sabina was trained by Insight Share, where she's now an associate. They use participatory video with communities around the world. If you're curious about their work, check out insightshare.org. As someone who's done a bit of filmmaking myself, something that I find really interesting about participatory video is that the end product, the film, is often just a small part of the project. Something Sabina didn't talk about is the games and exercises she uses to bring participants together, draw out their experiences, encourage debate and consensus building, and to support everyone to share their stories. PV has been used in the aftermath of conflict situations to bring opposing sides together. And even on a smaller scale, like in a farming community, it can be a really effective way of highlighting and maybe even resolving stubborn, long-running problems. I think the idea of participatory podcasting is really exciting too. And I think Farmerama goes some way towards that. As always, though, we'd love your ideas about how to make it more accessible and more relevant. Grow Observatory is an EU-wide project helping people grow food and care for their soils using regenerative practices. Grow Observatory also uses people's observations of soils to improve environmental monitoring by satellites. In doing so, the project helps with climate change adaption. Oliver Moore and Pavlos Georgiadis from the Grow Observatory team sent us a series of recordings made on the road in Greece this summer. Rural sociologist Dr. Maria Partalidou spoke to them about the changing relationships between rural and urban communities in Greece. What we have been uh, observing in Greece um, the past years, uh, I mean those years that we are in um, crisis, the year of crisis, um, that um, 
New links have uh, emerged between the rural and the urban. Uh, due to the stresses that the economic crisis um, has um, provoked, uh, we see, we've seen that uh, farmers are looking to uh, connect in a different ways, ways to urban dwellers and, and urban, urban uh, customers. On the other way, uh, urban dwellers need to reconnect with farmers, uh, especially small farmers and farmers uh, in the peri-urban. Uh, so new connections are emerging. And this, these connections have to do also with uh, food, okay, how we how we find food, uh, what kind of food do we find, is it fresh, is it local, etc., etc., a number of questions. But also, uh, these new connections have to do also with um, the rural ideal and our um, uh, way of thinking of the rural, because we've seen that uh, many urban people have this um, idealized uh, view of the, of the rural. So in um, their way to reconnect with nature and reconnect with their roots or even their rural past, they also seek new ways to um, make this distance uh, smaller. So we observe uh, a lot of initiatives in Greece, um, a lot of movements, civic movements, uh, that have to do with food, but have to do also with other values, such as ethical prices, such as uh, solidarity. Um, we have... Um, uh, alternative um, economies and alter al alternative activities. Um, so we want to reconnect with food uh, and uh, stop seeing food uh, the way we have um, seen it uh, the past years as just a commercial uh, good that we spend uh, in any way we like. There are a lot of uh, emerging models that uh, seek to address uh, this um, new relation between the rural and the urban. I mean, okay, farmers markets, we know, we have seen this work that has been working in other cases, in other uh, countries. But also there's um, another um, uh, attempt to um, rebuild this uh, trustworthy connection between the rural and the urban with uh, community-supported agriculture, which is um, um, has several forms in other countries and um, has a long story, but it's not uh, yet... Um, uh, expanded as an idea in Greece. Um, so I think that this, this might work because uh, within this new model of community-supported agriculture, uh, you have to have trust. You have to have trust towards this farmer that provides you with um, your everyday uh, vegetables or other produce. Um, and I think that um, once you build this trust, uh, between you and the farmer, between you and other uh, member groups, um, I think you can actually uh, establish the model and uh, actually um, reply to this crisis um, with a good at alternative. At least um, for the for the Greek case study, um, these new forms and these new relationships um, that we don't have former former experience have their um, historical background because in Greece we didn't have this heavy industrialization that other countries had in Europe. Uh, so that means that we had for a long time strong connections with the rural. Someone from our uh, extended family had a small piece of land that has been providing us with fresh produce, uh, with um, uh, vegetables, with olive oil, olive oil. 
uh, olives, etc. So um, the new generations of urban dwellers that are losing this this form of um, connection with uh, the rural are those that are most in need to create and recreate uh, new forms of cooperation and new links with um, uh, the rural. Mm -hmm. What is missing between the urban and the rural? Uh, it's, uh, I think that uh, it is um, uh, trust. Uh, the urban has lost, is not trusting the rural. I mean, uh, we do not trust uh, where our food comes from. We do not trust farmers due to all these uh, food scandals and all this um, uh, discussion about how our food system has changed. So for me, uh, there's a trust gap that we have to build again and we have to recreate trust among, amongst each other um, between the rural and the urban. Uh, so an ecosystem based on trust um, it's the most crucial uh, first step that we have to make. You can hear more of this interview with Maria on our SoundCloud page or farmerama.co, where she talks us through some of the successes of city gardens in Greece. As a young teen in Australia, healthy soils advocate and educator Joel Williams had the weekly chore of mowing the lawn. He spent days driving up and down and up and down and up and down. It focused his attention on the ground beneath his feet and he became fascinated. What started as a love of grass soon became a love of vegetables and then grew into a love of soil itself. He actually spoke to us about golf courses, but as you will hear, what he has to say is of great relevance to farmers as well. He told us how it's possible to manage weeds simply by working with the microbial balance in the soil. So we have done a bit of work in, in golf courses um, whereby uh, golf uh, groundskeepers, they obviously they're growing grass and they like to grow certain species of grass that are best for create a smooth and, and fine playing surface for, for putting on those greens. And um, there, of course, there are many different species of grass that they can use for that purpose. And they like, they much prefer to use more perennial, which means grasses that live year after year after year, um, that doesn't not an annual grass that just grows and dies once uh, in one year. Um, it, it lives through the winter and just starts to regrow again in the spring. So they prefer growing more of these perennial grasses uh, because they are better quality. They have finer leaves and they're better, they create a better playing surface. But they do have some problems with weeds, other grasses that come into those golf greens, particularly some of these annual grasses, which don't um, uh, create as a good... <clears throat> playing finer playing surface so there's a particular grass weed that they struggle with one called poa annua um, w w annual um, it's an annual grass often called winter grass or meadow grass annual meadow grass and this grass can start to grow in the greens and it's not as favorable and it's quite difficult for golf greens to uh, groundskeepers to manage because um they can't use herbicides to spray it out um, like they maybe uh, other farmers or other situations where you can use herbicides which are very specific in their mode of action very selective in their mode of action 
Um, they're both grasses, so they're both very similar. One's just perennial, one's annual. So you can't, if, you, if, the, if the groundskeeper did use a herbicide in that instance, it would also affect the health of his perennial one that he wants. So there, it's a real problem for them. And what we've found that we can do is actually apply a fungal inoculant, so apply some beneficial microorganisms to the soil, a particular group called fungi, and also apply some fungal foods, some food sources to feed that organism. And simply by inoculating or applying these, these, this particular microorganism into these golf greens, we make the soil, we make those golf, green, those golf greens more fungal dominated. They have a dominance of fungi. And what that actually does is change the soil. Those, as I mentioned, those examples of um, biology changing the soil properties, well, those fungi start to change the soil cycling of nutrients, the particular nutrients they cycle. They're improving the structure of the soil, those physical aspects. And they make the soil more favorable for those latest, those um, perennial grasses that they're trying to encourage. And actually that annual grass doesn't like that environment anymore. It struggles. It, it, it adapted in an environment that didn't have so much fungi. It adapted, it, it's, it thrives in a more bacterial-dominated soil, another microorganism uh, that exists in soils. It thrives in a bacterial-dominated soil and the, because it's annual and the perennial grass thrives in a more fungal-dominated soil. So as we shift that succession and um, shift the fungal dominance of the soil, um, we simply create the conditions that's favourable for one grass and it then grows with more vigour and it can outcompete the annual grass better. And so within the course of a, a season or two, the annual grass, the poa annual, becomes stressed. It goes a little bit yellow. It's, it's not getting the nutrients in, in the it likes that it thrives in. And it starts to stress. And at the same time, the perennial grass gets stronger and stronger and more and more vigorous. And so it totally outcompetes the, the annual grass. So through this means, through this mechanism, we can actually um, manage uh, this weed, this uh, annual grass weed, completely in a chemical-free way. Way, simply just by increasing, shifting, changing the microbial balance in the soil into a more fungal direction, simply changing the environment into an environment in which that uh, annual grass no longer thrives. Uh, when viewing soils, I, I think one of my messages is that um, soils are very complex ecosystems actually and we need to, we've had a tendency to kind of simplify that. We um, we try, to, which is important. It's important to make things simple. That makes life easy and, and helps everybody. But it's been also at our detriment um, when we view things uh, in a very narrow, blinkered, with a very narrow view. And we have to acknowledge that soils actually are vast and big and complex ecosystems, and they're they're not so simple to manage. And therefore, when trying to manage soils, when trying to work with soils, improve soil health, improve crop production, um, we have to take a step back and look at the bigger picture of soil and we can't just narrow down we can't just box ourselves in and think we can just look at one or two parameters look at a couple of nutrients um, and think that we can make assessments on the health of the entire system based on just measuring one or two little things in that little box so we need to take a step back and widen the view of soil health, uh, take a bigger picture look at soil health. And, and part of that is acknowledging, yes, soil chemistry is important. Let's look at that. Let's look at all of the minerals that are essential for plant growth. Yes, soil physics is important. Let's look at that. Look at the structural properties, the aeration and the moisture moving in those soils. And yes, soil biology is important. Let's also look at all these activities and diversity of all of these microorganisms. And the key then is to say, take a step back and look at soil from a 
an integrated holistic kind of view but then also put the plant into that picture so living plants living plant roots plants that are photosynthesizing capturing sunlight uh, breathing in carbon dioxide and also playing a role in that picture of soil health Uh, they are pumping carbon down into the soil and they are feeding those organisms which then help with the nutrient cycling and help with the structural properties so soil and plants are actually one there is no soil without plants there's no plants without soil and so we actually need to again put plants into that into that integrated picture measure the bigger picture um, and consider that soil and plants are one and um, manage them accordingly in that way We hope you enjoyed listening to Farmerama as much as we enjoy making it. We're always looking for supporters of the show, so if you're interested or you know someone who might be, then please get in touch with us through our website, farmerama.co. Landworkers Alliance have teamed up with Black Bark Films to create In Our Hands. We like how they describe the film on their website. At the heart of all change lies a story, and in our hands is the story of a new kind of farm, a new kind of food, and a new kind of society. The film's makers explain that it's conceived as an open-source tool to debunk the myth of the industrial food system. They want the film to be a resource for farmers and activists engaged in building a better world. Hannah Steenbergen got the lowdown for Farmerama from Humphrey Lloyd grower at Edible Futures and co-producer of In Our Hands. So the inspiration behind the film, I suppose, comes from the feeling that agriculture is very badly understood and that we really needed a, a easily to understand movement building tool that explains to people the real way forward for sustainable agriculture in this country and to debunk the myth of the industrial food system, at least to an extent because the kind of pervasive narrative that we need to scale up agriculture, we need to scale up the petrochemical imports, inputs, and that an export-driven mode of agriculture is the only one that's going to take us into the future, really does not stand up to any kind of systematic analysis. And so this film is there to explore those concepts, give them a human face, and make them interesting and engaging to the British public and the agricultural sector. We spoke to this guy um, called Josh Healy, who's a micro dairy farmer in Oxfordshire. Um, and Odin knew before we got to his farm that he was running a herd of just 18 cattle. Okay, so super small scale. And when I got there, we were talking to Josh, and then these two other people rocked up, and you know, who were obviously there to work. And what I assumed was, well, this guy's doing well out of volunteers, because you know, off this many cows, there's no way he's paying various members of staff. And and one of these people who just rocked up, who I was assuming was a volunteer, then said, oh, no, you know, we're like one of them was a full time and one of them was a part time employee. So they had two and a half, 20 grand incomes pro rata off these 18 cows. Here's a short clip of small scale dairy farmer Josh Healy talking in the film. We're able to survive when farms that are seven, eight, nine times as big are failing and going out of business all the time purely the fact that we're able to take all of the retail value for the dairy produce that we're selling. It's quite amazing, I guess, for a lot of people to hear when, you know, particularly those people that are just 
working themselves to the bone. The biggest political impact that I can have really is to make what I'm doing here and what we're doing here is a success and replicable. Um, a Eurostat report that came out, uh, I think it's 2014, showed that in 21 of the 28 member states of the EU, small-scale farms are more productive than big farms. In this country, in the UK, small-scale farms are twice as productive as big farms. And it kind of goes without saying that they're better for the environment, um, employing well, more people per unit area. So on any way you want to measure it, productivity, environmental, social, economic. So if we're looking for how we move agriculture forward in terms of like dealing with climate change, dealing with growing populations, uh, dealing, with foods, um, dealing with food security, dealing with Brexit, really small scale farms under any logical analysis is really where we want to be going. However, small scale farmers are chronically underrepresented in our, in our politics. Okay, we have a national farmers union that is not really a union. It's more like an agribusiness lobby group that if you look at any of the key agricultural issues over the past 15, 20 years, they've not been representing small scale farmers. They've been representing agrochemical companies and supermarkets more than small scale farmers. And so that's why not just this film in our hands, but the Land Workers Alliance in general has come along to say, to try and create a platform for the interests of small scale farmers, try and debunk the myths that say that small scale farmers are anachronistic, are unproductive, because those are untrue. Um, and give these people a political voice so that we end up being represented in the media, in government policy, and in kind of public perception in general, as an important part of our agricultural sector going forwards. And that's, you know, that's something that In Our Hands is trying to do, more at the level of public perception, really. Um, you know, it's not there to be a policy document for ministers to explain, to advocate for small-scale farmers. It's more there so that we, the people of Britain in general, begin to develop an understanding that big farms, you know, the, the farm with 300 cattle um, that is employing one, one overworked farmer is out of date isn't that is anachronistic and the the farmer the dairy farmer who's managing to make a living off 18 cows because they're directly selling their milk rather than selling it to supermarkets the reason we've ended up thinking that large farms are productive is because the way we measure productivity in this country is the amount of food you produce divided by the number of people working on the given area so that gives you the impression that a large farm with one guy on a large tractor is more productive than a smaller farm with two people working on it, even if they turn out more food. Okay, so a subsidy system that takes that into account and is more interested in producing large amounts of food, looking after the soil and the land and employing more people is essentially like valued more than the larger industrial model. Um, we're, you know, it's very important for us to see like specific support for like young entrant, new entrant farmers you know, along, along the lines of like the Scottish and the Welsh models. Like if you're in Scotland, a new ancient farmer can get up 70 grand to set up a new farm. Yeah, why don't we have something like that here in England? That's crazy. Thank you, Hannah and Humphrey. And if you'd like to see the film yourself, there are a number of screenings up and down the UK over the next few weeks. There's one at the Depot Cinema in Lewis on the 6th of December and one at the Castle Cinema in Hackney, East London on the 8th. We'll post links to all of the information on our Facebook page. Thank you.
This month's episode was produced by Joe, Katie, and myself. I'm Abby Rose. Special thanks to Pavlos Georgiadis and the Grow Observatory team for the interview from Greece. And thanks to Emma Steenbergen for her interview with Humphrey. If you have something you'd like to share, please get in touch. We're farmeramaradio at gmail.com and you can find us easily on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. We'll be back in December for one more episode before we launch into a new year.